Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. A quick warning, there are discussions of rape and violence as well as sex in today's episode. There's also one use of profanity. Listener discretion is advised. Today, I'm joined by Monique Rafi to talk about her latest novel, The Mermaid of Black Conch, out and available since 2020 and originally published by People Tree Press, but published in paperback by Vintage Books last year. Monique is the author of six books of fiction, as well as the memoir, With the Kisses of His Mouth. She's also an experienced creative writing instructor. Her works often incorporate magical realism, explorations of race, colonialism, gender issues, sexuality, and taboo topics in all those areas. She can also write stunning and evocative sex scenes, as well as compelling scenes of violence. So we're going to unpack how she accomplishes all of this. I may even coax her into talking about the role of Jungian analysis in her work and the role of reticular activation system in her writing. I've heard her talk about both those things. The Mermaid of Black Conch has won a host of awards, including the UK's prestigious Cost of Fiction Award and the Cost of Book of the Year. Its journey into the world is almost as fascinating as the book itself, so we'll talk about its unlikely publication history, crowdfunding a novel, and so much more. Before I bring her on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started the page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun tips and tricks every single week. You can visit the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. If the show's boosted your writing in some way or you've gotten some useful advice, this is an easy way to reach out. and We appreciate it. On with the show. Moinique Rafi, welcome. Thank you. You've done your research. Gosh, I can't believe when, when you when I hear people talk about me, I, I sometimes think, oh, my gosh, it's all true. So I didn't say in my introduction that you were born and raised in part in Trinidad and now live in England and enjoy dual citizenship in both Trinidad and the UK. And this duality really seems to have shaped a lot of your work. And so I was kind of wondering if we could just start there with a little background on how you grew up and maybe the tradition of storytelling in your family and, you know, whether becoming a writer was always the plan? Yeah, sure. So I am the third child of my European parents who came to the Caribbean in 1956, abreast of the new movement, the push for independence by a, a very charismatic Black nationalist leader, Eric Williams. Um, my parents arrived the day he first took to the hustings in 1956 on a banana boat <laughs> and they came as very young very young you know you could sort of my, I think my father would be a very bog standard colonial man my who'd married a European woman my mother who spoke several languages and was born in Egypt but saw herself as French Italian and so they arrived for a four-year contract 70 years ago and they're still my mother's still there my father died years ago my mother's still there and my family still live there. My brother's there and his children are there and they're all very embedded in, in Trinidad. And I have been coming and going for my whole life, really, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. So it's a huge backdrop to who I am and where I come from. And sometimes I wish it, it was much simpler. You know, sometimes I wish I wasn't so split that there, there wasn't so much hybridity to figure out. And I've often thought to myself, oh, God, you know, I wish, wish it wasn't, I wish this wasn't true. Yeah, it's very, yeah, it is, it's a, it's a thing that splits you. 
So tell me a little bit about the storytelling tradition there, because I, you know, I get the sense that this novel was born out of some lore and and cultural storytelling there. And I'm just curious because I, you know, I, I'm a bit ignorant, I have to admit, of Caribbean literature and, and sort of literary tradition there. Well, Trinidad tends to punch above its weight when it comes to producing writers. And so <laughs> it's the whole, the whole region punches above its weight. We've famously got two Nobel laureates in literature. So writers of my generation, um, and they are Derek Walcott and V.S. Naipaul. So -hmm. writers of my generation, we all know that we come out from underneath, you know, an immense literary stature. And not just those two men, there's a whole generation of men and women who were writing in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So I come from a really high-end literary world and tradition that has produced many great writers and at the same time so I'm talking about like on the page writers but of course I also come from a place where there's the idea of the griot the uh the storyteller which is an African loric archetype that the storyteller the scribe the man who tells the stories and I also come from a mother who, who who's a good storyteller with a very very strong tradition even in my personal family of just people talking telling stories and in my novel I you know I've opened the novel with an omniscient storytelling voice which is a voice that sort of says come you know come and come and hear what I have to say and this is the same voice that uh, Jean Rhys has used with Wide Sagasso Sea. You know, this, mm. this all, this omniscient, they say, they say that when trouble comes, close ranks. And Juno Diaz has used this all, this kind of, they say, rumours have it, that it came on, came from Africa. So there's a tradition of, you know, contemporary writers working with this old voice of kind of an ancestral voice of, of somebody who's got perspective and historical perspective on like the whole world in which we're going to plunge you, the reader, into the micro story of, of, the, of the book. Yeah, it's interesting. And we can get into this a little bit later. But I both listened to and read the book. And I don't know if you've had the pleasure of listening to your narrator, but my God. <laughs> yes, <it's laughs> yes. He's yes. unbelievable. He's yes, unbelievable. But it got me to thinking about, you know, sort of the oral tradition of storytelling versus the written tradition of storytelling. And and this book, maybe because I experienced it both ways, felt very fluid between those. You know, it it felt very Mm. oral. And somehow through the language and the dialect that you use of the, the Creole English, you were able to capture sort of an oral storytelling tradition through the written word. And we can get mm-hmm. into that as we talk about mm-hmm. the novel more. But I mm-hmm. thought that was really interesting. So so why don't we lay the foundation for the novel in, in the event people haven't picked it up and take us into this world a little bit. And that will that will sort of set the foundation for some of my questions. Well, it's really a 21st century feminist revision of an old Taino myth. And the myth is of a woman called Aikaia who's cursed by her sisters and her other women of her village and doomed to excluded and exiled as a mermaid. And the reason for her punishment is because she's too pretty and she's too young and she's too bothersome. She's too attractive. And when she's cursed and banished by a mighty, mighty goddess called Jaguar. An uh, old woman is also swept up in a mighty hurricane. And the old woman and the young woman, so 
two very different types of women are basically banished and exiled and excluded from a community. And I stumbled across this story some time ago, and I had been dreaming about a mermaid some time before that. When I found this story, I was like, oh, oh, you know, it could do with a reset or a revision. I'd like to give this poor young woman a lover, some friends. I'd like to, you know, not quite rescue her, but I'd like to bring her back onto land. So it really just started from there. You know, what? how am I going to... Let me think about this old story where the, the archetypal structure is so patriarchal and frankly, very chauvinistic. And it got me thinking about, you know, when do you get being a woman right? You know, what age or stage of your career as a woman? Are you safe? Are you, are you okay? You know, so it, there was so, it, the, the old story brought up so many questions for me. And, and I had been dreaming about a mermaid prior to finding the story. I think it's very interesting that this this conception of the mermaid and I don't know I don't know the original tale but in the US Disney has really commodified the mermaid into some sort of you know vapid sexual but inaccessible and your mermaid we should say is is a very very different woman a very different kind of of creature and how true to that was the well, she she was always banished to the sea, so she never came up on land. So this was your entire imagining of, of this woman. Well, I, I think that, well, I know for a fact that we've been telling mermaid stories for like, I think the first, the oldest mermaid story is 3,000 years old. Mm. And it's set in Mesopotamia about a goddess, Atagaris. So that is a thousand years before Christianity. Hmm. So she is a pan-global archetype that prefigures Christ. So she's part of our pagan tradition of being very close to nature and very looking at nature as a source of wisdom and understanding the world. So, you know, pre-Christ, we were polytheic and we worshipped and respected nature and gendered a lot of nature as feminine. So we know that anthropologists have found tiny little statues of women all over the world. So we know there was a strong respect and um, worship of Gaia, the woman, the goddess, as a kind of matriarchal force of good. And I think the two oldest stories we tell each other is one, the first, the oldest story we've ever told each other is the story of birth, the, the kind of crazy miracle that a baby drops from between the legs of a woman. Baby, you know, women grow large, and then they bear fruit and they they bear babies. And then, you know, we've always noticed that not only do women grow large and then give birth, but also the planet is doing the same thing. You know, it's fecund at certain times of the year and then it dies off and then it comes back. So this idea of birth and rebirth is the oldest story we've ever told. I will get back to mermaids in a minute. But then there's the story of the hunt, which came later, and the story of survival and the chase. That's a masculine story. And these stories have been competing with each other. So we know from a long time ago that there was this kind of storytelling interwoven and wisdom traditions interwoven with nature, with what we had around us. And our civilizations were born on their understanding of nature, of the planets of the world around us. So she's the mermaid is born from a time when our consciousness was completely different to our consciousness today when we were very close to nature and we worship nature. And so the old indigenous mermaids that are all over the world 
are a kind of magic trick or a kind of breeding, a crossbreed of the divine feminine with the principle of, of water, which is also the divine feminine. So she's an incredibly powerful ancient icon of femininity that we've been dreaming up around the world for thousands and thousands of years. So it's, it's interesting how strong she still is today. We all recognize a mermaid. But yes, she was, I think she was hijacked in the Victorian era by a kind of storytelling that was patriarchal again. And she became this kind of curse, a cursor of sailors that she would, was nothing but trouble. And she was often half naked, always female, always young, always half naked. Uh, kind of picture postcard, Victorian kind of ambiguous sexuality. Here I am, boys, kind of pinup. And mm-hmm. then she was also hijacked by Disney. But I like to think that my mermaid is, is actually comes from what mermaids are, truly are, truly have been. You know, I don't think that I've rewritten mermaids. I think that Disney has rewritten mermaids. Yeah, right. Yeah. And she seems, I don't know if she's immortal, but she's very long lived. And, and yeah. I think it's it's interesting to banish someone and then destine them to almost, you know, immortality. Yeah. Uh, did you ever play with the idea of taking her to see with the older woman and explore that relationship? Or was this always going to be the story it was? No, this is the story of one young woman. But I, if there's ever going to be a sequel, I think I will have her going back to the old woman and seeing what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. So this was, this was always going to be about this young woman. So the story opens, um, not opens, but in fairly soon, there is a, uh, there is a hunt. These fishermen come for a competition to the Caribbean and they capture her. And um, that whole scene, which takes place over the course of probably 25 pages, it's an extended scene, really reads really very much like a gang rape, more yeah. than a hunt. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and writing that, I think, is tricky. I think, you know, one of the one of the tricky things for writers is sex. And one of the tricky things for writers is violence and not becoming overly emotive or, con- you know, mm-hmm. or, or something. And so I was wondering if there are things you can say about how you accomplish that so effectively. I was so afraid for her and I was so... Mm-hmm sort of in her in her skin immediately and there's there's a scene I hope I'm not giving too much away and if I am you know I'll just cut mm-hmm. this out but there's mm-hmm. a scene towards the end of this scene where where one of the fishermen urinates on her and mm-hmm. it's such a such a violence so mm-hmm. I, I I don't know what you could say about this or say you know from a writing perspective that might be useful to people who are trying to approach scenes that are that are really mm. often very difficult to access. Yeah, I mean she's a freak of nature, and their impulse is to violate her, or to traffic her, or to monetize her, and or to rape her, or to, or to sexually assault her. Those are all the the, the initial urges. And I don't think that I am writing against realism there. I don't think, even though she's a fantastical creature, look, it's yeah. five men on a boat and they've got a naked woman who there's half dead, who is a freak. In fact, you know, I, I think it's interesting what you're saying about it's a gang rape scene. I think what, what's true more is it's there's a, there's a vibe, vibe of gang rape, definitely, but she doesn't actually get raped. They've realize they're sort of slightly blaspheming. They're doing something sacred. So they're doing something that is wrong in a sacred way. And they're aroused 
they are sexually aroused, they are full of contempt, they are in awe, there's an immense amount of awe because she has a lot of energy and she's vast. It's like, what have they done? They don't know what quite what they've done. So, I mean, the writer's job is to go there, isn't it? For me, it was the best thing in the world to write this book because I got to... I got to do a good job on her, I think. I got to write what I wanted to write, which is this, they pulled a really powerful, angry goddess out of the sea. It's interesting because she can't, by her nature, she cannot be penetrated. No. But So it really makes you explore what the definition of rape is, the, the nature of this creature. Mm. And, you know, at some point it turns from a hunt, which is necessarily violent, testosterone driven to something else to once she's on the boat you know she becomes more of a a woman than uh than a fish for mm. them you know and mm. the sexualized mm. and so that transition from the hunt to the you know to the rape to the from the fish to the woman mm. was really remarkable and i think in some ways i i don't know if you agree with this that you can get there effectively in fiction by just stating the facts and not commentating on it and just sort of going into a mm. reporter's mind. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, It wasn't, I mean, you just show, you know, just showing what's going on here. The reader, it, you know, you, you, you hopefully aim to embed in the reader's consciousness everything they need to make up their own mind about mm. what's going on. You know, you're decoding it. I'm not an analyst. I'm not doing anything. The reader's analyzing everything. So it's quite a simple job, really. It's just like constructing a movie, it's like mm. making, making motion picture with words. But I also, I read a poem years ago, and I think it's at the beginning of the book, it is from Pablo Neruda. And I read it as a really young woman, and it always stuck with me. Um, it's called The Mermaid and the Drunks. And it's about a similar type of thing happens where a young mermaid somehow loses her tail and, and makes her way up, up onto land and finds herself in a terrible place. She, she stumbles into a bar naked and with still a bit fishy, you know, and the, the men in the, in, in the bar violate her and they stub cigarettes out on her. And that is, I definitely think Neruda gave me what I needed. And he's a man, he's a male writer, he's a, he's a poet, a male poet writing about, you know, he, he, he gave me the kind of door, the gateway to go, okay, this is how she is likely to be treated, right. you know, with contempt, with violation, with, with, you know, she's a freak. And there are all these plays between the men about one man wondering whether his son is gay and, you know, if he's man enough to do this. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, all of these things get pulled into it. Um, it's, it's such a multi-layered, complicated scene. And as you say, I guess, you know, if you're, if you're just journalistically describing exactly what happens, it's all going to get in there anyway. Mm -hmm. But when you unpack it, so much, so much is going on in there. It's, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. There's also a scene where the head of a marlin is cut off. Marlins mm. are really very big fish and, mm. and someone is, is sort of wearing this, this mm. thing around. I heard that this was drawn from life, that this, this was a story you had heard that was so effectively embedded in this book because um, yeah, the, the parallel of that alongside the mermaid, the violence of that was, was really stunning too. Uh, talk a little bit about that scene. No, I was having a drink with somebody and he told me the story that he was in exactly the same place 
where I'd had my mermaid dream and there's somebody had cut the head off a marlin and there's a big fish depot on the foreshore in, uh, in this particular village. I knew exactly, I knew when he was telling the story, I knew exactly where he was talking about. I knew the depot, I could see it all. And he said that this, somebody put the marlin head on his own head and was running around the village scaring people. And I was just like, you know, I'm a writer, you know, don't tell me that. I'm going to use it. You just, you shouldn't tell writers anything because they just write it down somewhere and pocket it away, you know, for God knows when, five years later, they're writing a mermaid book. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So this is told sort of in um, three layers. It's told as you, as you described the omniscient, come to me, I'm going to tell you a story point of view. And mm -hmm. then it also has journal entries from from the the man who ended up sort of saving this mermaid on the land, and then mm -hmm. has some I I don't know to describe it poet poetry poetic sort mm -hmm. of soliloquies free verse uh, some free verse free verse yeah. yeah by the mermaid mm -hmm. and they're all kind of interwoven snaking in and out of each other together in each chapter. Tell me a little bit about that because that's an unconventional way to tell a story and it was really very effective. Well, a, a couple of things. It's not the first book I've written where I've used a kind of patchwork um, method of storytelling or used more than one narrative voice. And I think I'm pretty much now convinced that if you hear one person, now loads of novels, hundreds, thousands, maybe even 70% of novels are written and just there's just one storyteller. There's one narrator telling you the whole story and they work, they work fine. But I'm, I'm of a, a different opinion. I think if one person is going to tell me a story, great, and keep my attention for 20 minutes, which most Caribbean people could, um, great. Now, if that person is going to tell me a story about a mermaid, interesting. I'm going to hear it with an open mind. Now, if I then bump into a second person, he's going to tell me the same story, but he has slightly different information I'm suddenly really interested in this mermaid story because now I have two people telling me the story. And then, you know, if three people are telling me the same crazy story that happened in 1976 about this mermaid, all of a sudden the story has legs. It's got heft. It's about credibility, building credibility, really, as a, as a storyteller, as a fiction teller, as a weaver of, a weaver of the truth, you know, weaver of fiction from nowhere. I've got to somehow make my readers become mesmerized or hypnotized i want my readers to go oh oh okay i'm on board i'm interested and for me i've done this before you know i've patched stories together before with different narrators in order to make the fiction more flexible stronger more credible more believable so that's my reason why i've used three narrators i've done the same with other books with House of Ashes with the Triss, with the white one and the green bicycle. And I think it's just something that I've in, I inherently trust this method of storytelling. I am also doing it in the current novel that I'm writing, just kind of weaving one narrative, but with many voices. But with the also, I had this mermaid voice first. And initially I thought maybe she could take on a much stronger role in the in the narrative. And I realized that it was going to be way, way too problematic in terms of again boxing or fooling the reader into the dream of the narrative so she I kept her on on board and I've I, I just worked on her and worked on her and worked on her until I found a way that I thought okay now 
I can see that she might speak like this. She might speak not quite broken English, but in verse. She's writing things down as well. She's got a flavour of the Creole dialect. She's got some of her own words. So, yeah, no, it was it was just a yeah. And the interesting thing, in addition to it being several narrators, is you're able to span time frames. So so David's journal entries are really taking place more in present kind of present day in the in mm-hmm. the 21st century mm-hmm. looking yeah, back looking on back. events yeah. that happened in 1976 when when mm-hmm. she was taken from the sea and then she has this very long history of her own going back i think hundreds hundreds of years if i'm not mistaken of you know she has memories of that and so she is able mm-hmm. to to cover so you're able mm-hmm. to cover really broad swaths mm-hmm. of of mm-hmm. time and mm-hmm. Uh, memory and the role of memory and and how mm-hmm. things change in our memory and so it so it accomplishes both different points of view different ways of storytelling because um journal entries just read very different than you know regular straight narrative and mm-hmm. time periods so that you know that that different snaking i think was was really very interesting i don't know if you can give writers tips on writing in dialect that can be you know, that can be dangerous if not done by somebody who really is very well versed mm, in, yeah. in the language. I have a friend right. called Jane Harris who wrote, uh, she's Scottish, and she wrote a novel. It was called Sugar Money, and it's set in Martinique. And, like, I wouldn't personally attempt to write in Martinique and Creole, but she did. And she pulled it off brilliantly because she just researched and researched and researched. She was completely tenacious. And she was completely committed to telling the story. And she she un, she completely understood everything that she was stumbling into. And she pulled it off. So in, in different regional parts of the UK, people speak differently. And if you come from Cornwall or you come from South London or you come from Scotland and, and you do hear the dialect in your in your ear or you speak it, then you have a huge advantage. But I'm not going to set a book in Manchester or Scotland or Cornwall myself because I don't have it and I could get it very badly wrong and it would be a project in itself just to to work in another dialect so I think you're right I think it's complicated but I have to say that I wouldn't advise against it because anything's possible you know go for it if you really need to do it do you feel as though being away from Trinidad was useful to you in getting perspective on writing about it? Or do you feel like you had to be sort of immersed in the culture as you were writing about it? And I, I hear writers talk both ways about I either need to be really very distanced from it to have some perspective to write about it objectively, or I need to really be fully immersed. I do both. So I'm backwards and forwards so often that I'm never really away. So I don't spend long periods of time where I never go back. So I feel as though it's like it's always threaded. It's always been Trinidad's always threaded through my life. In I would say through most of my 40s, I would spend six months of the year there. Mm. So that would be when I would be in my really deep writing mode. I would write when I was there then I would come back um, in COVID and lockdown. So with the Mermaid book, I was there a lot. I did a lot of writing in Charlotteville. I did a lot of writing in Grand Riviere. I did a lot of writing here and there and here and there. But then COVID struck and I didn't go home for two years. I just went back in January and it made a big difference because obviously I know this place. I know this place very, very well. But going back, you know, just like, oh, 
here it is again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, okay, that's where the tree is. Okay. You know, and I do take photographs. So my my books have come from like deep, deep knowledge and understanding of the place and people there. But I've, I've, I've visited archives, I've interviewed people, I take photographs, I'm always scavenging, I'm always, you know, reading. I've ransacked people's private archives, I've ransacked newspaper archives, I've been to the National Archives, I've been to the University Archives. So it's, it's, it's a combination of what I know and, and, and more, and what else can I find out about this place that's given me, I mean, I'm writing my fifth novel now set in the Caribbean, and and probably my final novel set in the Caribbean. But as I would say to most creative writing students, you can't write a book off the top of your head. Yeah, you had had a conversation, I can't can't remember with who now, about really interrogating your reasons for writing something. You know, if you had, I think you worded it, you know, if you had done a, you know, a gap year in Africa, maybe you really shouldn't be writing about Africa. So asking yourself, yeah. yeah, what are you doing? We'll be right back with more from Monique Rafi and the Mermaid of Black Conch in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page if you're liking the show and you've learned anything along the way that might have inched you closer to publication. Visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. You will get weekly writing tips and prompts as well as a few other goodies by becoming a backer. Let's get back to it with Monique Rafi and the Mermaid of Black Conch. As you're doing all of this research, tell me a little bit about what your office space looks like in terms of gathering all of this together. Are are you surrounding yourself with mermaid imagery, with pictures of these, you know, maybe the house where... David lives? Do you have sort of visual images that you're working from surrounding you as you're writing? Or is this kind of just stored in the memory banks of your head? It's interesting. I may have talked about this as well somewhere, but many, many years ago, somebody showed me an essay written by Hilary Mantel. It's called Growing a Tail. And she uses ring binders. So she often starts collecting her books in ring binders, like she will start picking up images, photos, letters, bits, you know, detritus. And she puts it all in ring binders before she even starts writing anything. Mm. And I have a slightly different method, which is I have a, I use a very large board, which is above my desk. And I call it my garbage patch, actually, because it's a sort of half Petri dish, half garbage patch. And it is where I know when I've got a novel on and going, I do rely heavily on visual images and the visual images come thick and fast. And so they grow, it grows, I grow the novel visually in my head as I'm doing my research. I have written a treatment for my current book and I wrote a crime novel before this, which is still unpublished. And I wrote a treatment for that. Somebody convinced me to write a treatment and but I tend to plan and research. I pl- tend to have months of research and planning before I start anything. And in during the early stages of planning, I again the images go up on the wall and they stay there until the book is published. I don't finish the novel until I've got like I know it's gone off to the printers. And when they say, Oh, we've sent it to the printers today, that's when I go, okay, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> maybe well my bit is done my job is done it's over yeah now. 
Well, that's a, that's actually an interesting question because I know this was published originally by by People Tree Press, and then it came mm. out in paperback. And I was wondering mm. if you were itching to make any changes between the the original publication and the paperback publication. Actually, I have to say that Knopf, my editor John Freeman at Knopf, have done a very very forensic and a very good job. We didn't change anything in terms of we didn't change anything to do like content wise or or sentence structure. But they picked up numerous tiny, tiny little tweaks, little not quite typos, but they, you know, is it fly deck or flight deck? You uh, know, is uh. it saxo salt or saxo salt? You know, they picked up quite a lot of tiny, tiny things mm. that needed to be done. So the Knopf American edition is the cleanest edition of this book, mm. definitely. Yeah, and it's a great, it's beautiful, I and mean, they've done a great job. I'm really thrilled with it. So as you talk about uh, writing treatments, which I I kind of assume is another word for outline, but I want to unpack if Mm. that's true or not. Tell me a little bit about what those look like and how detailed they are and how much latitude you allow yourself to let them change as the novel grows. Uh, I always used to plan a lot. I always used to say I need 20 scenes before I would allow myself to think, okay, my book is beginning to sort of have some meat on the bone. And then I tried my hand at writing a crime novel a couple of years ago. And I've got a friend who works in the TV and she just kept saying, write a treatment, write a treatment. You know, that's what we do. That's what we do, write a treatment. And basically a treatment is what film, anyone in the film or TV world, they write treatments. So they write the, they write the plot down. They write, you know, this happened and that happened. Then she goes here and she does this and this is what's going on. And they write that before they film anything. Because it's for location finders, it's for the whole cast and crew. If you think about a film as a massive collaboration, they kind of need a Bible. They kind of they either call it the book or the Bible or the treatment. And from the treatment, they write the screenplay. Now, as a literary writer, oh my God, you know, we literary writers, oh my God, we're so precious. We would <laughs> never do anything like write a treatment, no matter how, no matter how good an idea it is. It's not for us. We would rather pull our teeth out, get depressed, become alcoholics, take years and years and years. <laughs> and this is exactly what does happen to, to literary writers. They get depressed. They don't know what's happening. You know, they're like, oh, God, it's so awful. I'm writing a book. But it doesn't have to be awful. Why don't we look at what film writers do? They don't do that. Why don't we do what they do? Why, it's not, it's not, you know. So for me, it's new to prep this, to prepare for a big piece of work. And, and yes, in answer to your question, I wrote a treatment for my new book. And guess what? You know, as you're writing, the whole thing starts growing. So my treatment was revised about three or four times. As I, as I was writing, more things went into the treatment. The treatment kept growing. So, but it did help. It's a very good thing to think about doing. I like this idea of having to have 20 scenes before you're you know, kind of give yeah. yourself permission to know that you have a book going. So those are just kind of the story beats, those 20 scenes. I think you need 20 scenes, yeah, minimum. But these, I actually think you need 40 scenes. But mm. if you've got 20, I just used to used to write a very slim, like, you know, a few scene cards, like a stick bridge. But I think if you're taking 10 years to write a book, hmm, why? Why are you taking 10 years to write a book? I mean, what are you doing? I mean, do you have five children and you're working full time? Or, you know, then I could understand it. But why are you taking five years? Is you really don't know what you're doing or you really got lost or you can't think think what might happen to these characters or you're drafting and drafting. I mean, the process shouldn't be uber laborious. It shouldn't, 
be the kind of process that almost kills you. I just think if that's the case, if it's that bad, go and get another job. <laughs> <laughs> Very controversial thing to say, but you know, if you want to sit at your desk and make no plans, make none whatsoever, do no research, you're going to sit there for about five years. And, if or, you, and you may still not come out of it with a novel. I was going to say, or forever. Yes, right. Or forever, right. Or, you know, many years. <laughs> well, and the nice thing about that is, because I talk to so many writers who say, uh, middles, the middles are really very difficult. I know how it starts and I know how mm -hmm. it ends, but damn, what yeah. happens in the middle? And so having those 20, 40, whatever scenes at least mm. gives you a little way station, you know, little gas mm. stations to yeah. <laughs> juice up yeah, your car no. before you keep going. Mm. So let's talk about, let's talk about sex because you are a wizard at sex scenes. And this book has very different kinds of sex, the very different kinds of relationships between a few of the different characters. And so the way that you approach those scenes is, is very different. And I think a lot of writers look at a sex scene and they're like, you know, and then the lights dimmed and then the next morning they were having coffee, you know, they're mm -hmm. just scared of it. Yeah. So maybe, maybe you kind of introduce us to the three levels of relationships that we have here and how you approached those, those different kinds of sex scenes and any tips and tricks you can give yeah. people to, to do it. Well, I mean, I'm really proud of the sex scenes between the mermaid stroke woman, Ikea and David. Because what I was trying to do was write from the point of view of a woman who did not have any modern conditioning. So she doesn't think like you or I would. She's also a virgin, so she hasn't had sex. And she sort of doesn't really know what she's doing. But in a good way, you know, in a way where she has no fear. She's not fearful. Well, she's sort of magnetized by the idea of sex and she sees it as a kind of fate and she knows that this thing is to do with her cursing she doesn't she's trying to put it all together you know something to do with this sex is the reason why my life was ruined why I was cursed and she hasn't quite worked it out and then she gets it so I wanted her to have innocent agency the agency of innocence a bit like you know the kind of innocence that you or I might have the first time we ever tried pottery or the yeah. first time we ever baked, I don't know, bread or something. You know, it's like, you know, you're going to give it a go and you're probably going to get it wrong, but you're going to give it a go. Do you know what I mean? So in a light, in a light way, allowing yourself to sort of take, I wanted her to throw herself into it, really. And I didn't want her to just to simply imitate the patriarchy. I didn't want her version of of taking charge to look like what a man might do. I wanted her to be in her own agency and to be also powerful and sex sexual, you know, to sort of be like, here I am, you know, so clothes off and steps forward because we've seen so many um, very, very archetypes, stroke stereotype. The deflowering of the virgin is always a penetrative act where it's the woman who's on her back and it's the man who penetrates her. And so I flipped that whole scene completely. And I hope it is, you know, an erotic, active scene where, where a young woman is coming forward to claim something, to claim her, you know, what she was denied, why, why she's been, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. Yes. So, yeah, so she was great to write. And, and, um, and then Miss Rain is caught up in the race politics of loving a black man 
and he's caught up in it too, life. And so they were lovers as children. They loved each other from the time they met and they've grown up together. And then the parents tried to separate her and send her off to boarding school and sort of, but that didn't stop them. So this is a lifelong love that they've had for each other. They've loved each other all their lives. And then as they got older, the power structure, the dynamic between them became apparent to them both. And then the love stopped being something that could work for them, especially for life. And, you know, she owns everything. She's the master here. I'm not going to do this to myself, my dignity. This is wrong. And of course, it's, it's a terrible romantic tragedy as well. So that's what's going on in that relationship. It's like we, they love each other and underestimate power of love. You know, it sounds corny, but that is what's going on between them. And Priscilla and Porthos, I just love writing them. And, and I just yes. love, they're just great. They're, they're, I just love what, what's going on between them. Yeah, so these very three different types of, of sex and very three different types of what people want out of it and want out of each other and want out of themselves, I think is something writers really have to keep to the forefront of their mind. It's, it's, it's more psychological than physical act. And whatever is psychologically taking the characters into the scene is where you have to put your your energy into the scene. I think that's what made these scenes so very effective was it was more about their minds than about their bodies. Right. Mm. But still it's hard to, those are hard to pull off and they were all very, very erotic. And also, I mean, I, I just feel like, you know, how many times has sex been written about? So how do you write about it in new ways? And this just felt like, you know, very, very new ways, but you know, every person is different. So of course the psychology behind them is going to be different. So of course it's going to be different. But I've uh, done a lot of sex writing before this book. I don't know if you know, I mean, I've written yeah, a, yeah. a memoir and a, and a novella. I, I went through a big patch in my 40s of looking at sexuality and throwing myself into all kinds of tantric sex workshops. And, you know, and I think that's where my confidence comes from. It's just like, oh, I can just, oh, I've been living a lie all this time. I mean, I've, I could talk about, you could interview me just for an hour solid just about sex and sexuality. Because, you know, the normative penetrative sex as a model is one of the biggest biggest lies to women and men ever spun, you know, that, that sex is penetration, sex is fucking, is so problematic inside uh, patriarchy because it's not true. Women don't orgasm through penetration generally and no one speaks about it. And once I'd come to that conclusion, I mean, I couldn't stop, at one point I couldn't stop writing about sex because I felt, oh my God, I've got to, I've got to get to the truth here. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to say it to everybody because I get young women because I've written about sex and I'm older now, every now and again, I get a phone call from some beautiful young woman. And she's like, can I talk about sex? And I'm like, mm-hmm, yep, she's come to the same conclusion I did, mm. except for me, it was a bit later in life. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, mm. you don't come, you know, you don't orgasm through penetration. You know, whisper that in her ear. Try, reset, reset. So, I mean, I don't know. One of the biggest lies that was ever fed to me as a young woman. And I, again, I could talk about this at length. And so once I crossed into like, I need to tell the truth about this, stop writing yeah. lies, you know, stop writing lies. It has to yeah. go into my books. It has to go into my books. Which is yeah. why the mermaid is just such the perfect vehicle image icon to get to, mm. to those ideas because by yeah, because, nature, yeah. by nature, yeah. right. Hmm. Is this where some of your Jungian analysis and Jungian psychology came into play? As because I, I've seemed to have 
garnered from some of the interviews that I've heard that that is a, a big influence on your writing, some of your exploration mm -hmm. of Jungian R-types. Obviously, it isn't here. But I was wondering if you could talk about that and how maybe that study has enriched your writing or changed your writing. Mm, thank you. In Well, in two ways. First of all, I do feel that Jung knew what he was talking about when he wrote about archetypes that are embedded in our unconscious not just archetypal characters and people, but also stories, story structures that we tell each other. And it's like a collective DNA. It's a collective wisdom. It's a repository inside our collective unconscious. And so, and we've been doing this thing, not just telling stories, but making art for our mental health and our mental well-being, right from when we were killing, you know, along, along with um, fight or flight, and adrenaline and all the things that we need to survive. Why have we also been telling stories and making art? Because those two things we could actually live without, but apparently not. They've been essential to how human beings have survived psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally. So he was onto something when he said, you know, the, the impulse to tell stories and make art is in our DNA. We all know how to do it. We all understand there's some signs and symbols around us. You only have to look and they're ancient. They're meaningful. They are portentous. So as a storyteller and I would say any other artist as well, you know, this is like basic grammar, basic grammar of like of what I do professionally and what artists do. And it, so on the what so that so that is something that in every book I'm always thinking, okay, I've, I've got this story what's the archetypal structure of it? I'm not writing a new story. There are no new stories. So what story am I writing? So I go stalking off to find the myth, the, the European myth usually, because I am mostly European-minded. But I go and try and find initially the bones, the unconscious bones of the story I think I'm telling, or vice versa with the mermaid. I found an old story and I retold it. But usually I start with a story and then I have to find out where it came from. So anyway, so that's really important work for me. But being in psychoanalysis as a, a analysand, I would say it was four or five years. And for a couple of years, it was twice a week. And mm. it's probably the most privileged and important work a person can do. And I was also able to afford it because um, I was offered very, I was offered clinic prices by a very noble analyst. And so I think analysis affords you time to integrate different parts of yourself, where there's trauma, where there might be memory loss, where there's pain, where there are questions about gender and sexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of it is, is dream work, analyzing what's going on in your unconscious, bringing that to consciousness. So, and the, so part of the analysis, I think, is work to be done. I think as a writer, you need to be on top of everything. You really need to understand, you know, how power works. You re really do. You really need to be on top of things. You don't need to be telling your reader, oh, this is how things are. The reader knows as well, mm -hmm. the adult reader. So you need to be on top. You need to be like hitting the ground running on page one and explaining nothing. So if you don't know what's going on, you can't write. Mm -hmm. You've got to be really, really, you've got to know, you know, you've got to know stuff. And you've got, so I don't know how I or any other younger writers write, to be honest. When I look back at my uh, younger books, when I was a younger woman, I was like, mm, uh, I'm not, a sh you know, I look at my younger books and I go, well, isn't it interesting? I grew up and then 
I wrote a good book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was going to be my my next question is if you look back on those those books pre analysis and see just a different writer and and see the you know whatever this did to change how you approach writing and it sounds like it really did it sounds like it gave you a sort of authority over your writing I think eventually we all start to takes a long time for human beings to care about everything some people get through their lives and they don't care about everything they just get through their lives and they just looking after their children and themselves yeah and they don't want to look out too much and yeah. it's horrifying. It's horrifying when you look out into the world as well. But writers have to, have to, have to, have to understand, have to look out and then contextualize. Otherwise, you know, what are you doing? So it's, it's taken, I think it takes people years to understand principles of interconnectivity that I'm connected to you. You know, yes, we're talking to each other. But we're all connected. Everyone's connected. Everything's connected. And and so this is what I'm talking about. I, I look back at my younger books, the books I wrote, you know, under the age of 40. Mind you, there's only one. But when I'm under the age of 45, you know, and I look back and I go, mm, they're not bad. They're good books. Okay, let's just say I, I don't, I, you know, they're okay. But you really have to be a wide awake participant of this, you know, world. You've got to be seriously engaged and come to understand how things work. Well, let's switch gears completely and talk about the evolution of this book because it's it's unusual. It came out, I believe, commensurate with the pandemic, which is mm. every writer's dream, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then uh, it enjoyed this new life. There was some sort of crowdfunding. Tell me a little bit about that publication story because it's such a story of hope and rebirth almost which is so metaphoric for a book like this but uh, tell me a little bit about that yeah um it's a great story and and I it does give when I talk to my writer friends who are struggling they're like oh my god that's a great story does give them hope so when my agent tried to sell the book nobody wanted it nobody nobody in mainstream publishing wanted to buy it so we went with a really really reputable independent publisher called people tree press I was really pleased because Jeremy Ponton, who is the editor and founder of the press, has edited every single major Caribbean writer ever. He understands dialect. He understands. He's been to the Caribbean a lot. He knows what he knows what we're talking about. So I thought, great, he is the right editor. But he didn't have. They didn't have a crowd. But they didn't have a budget for publicity. So he does publish a lot of poets. A lot of the poets he publishes does their publicity themselves. So I put it to him. I said, look, I'd really like to hire somebody to work with my book. And he said, fine. I said, I'm going to crowdfund. Are you okay with that? He said, fine. And so I crowdfunded in 2019. I, I, and I talked to other writer friends, including some famous writers. And they were all, no, don't do it. It's so embarrassing. Don't do it. You, know, you shouldn't do it. You're not a charity. And I, I didn't care enough. I, didn't, I couldn't <laughs> listen to I couldn't listen to the don't do it voice. Yeah. I couldn't, I I really did also wondered whether this would be the last book I'd ever write. So I went ahead and I raised enough money to hire a publicist. And we also got an arts council grant to put the book on tour. And in early 2020, I thought to myself, well, not bad, you know, this is looking okay. This is looking better than it did six months ago. And I thought, well, you know, good. You know, like everybody in t- early 2020, I mean, imagine... What, how, what the world was like in January and February of 2020, 
you know, the world was like, yeehaw, another year, you know. And then, <laughs> right. yeah. and then I was published in April of 2020 in the first wave of COVID. Hmm. And the book, I just thought this is it. You know, I just walk away now, just walk away because nobody was interested in The Mermaid or any books. You know, it was people were dying in their thousands in New York and all over the world and in London, you know, everybody, the prime minister was, you know, fighting for his life. So I just thought, well, this is the end of my, this this is it, you know, no publicist is going to get my book through the wall of what is going on in the world. And the book tour was cancelled. The book launch was cancelled. There's never been a book launch for this book Mm. because no, you know, it just hasn't happened. And then, so I just sort of two years ago, I just thought the book's done, it's over, it's dead. No more book, forget about it. Just no more book. Mm. And then it started it showed up on the prize list at the Goldsmiths Award and then it showed up Costa people were interested and then it won a big prize. So, <laughs> yeah. And then it was re-released or then released in it the US? It was re-released in, um, in the UK in for a Main Street paperback with Vintage Press and then it's now been sold to about 13 or 14 different countries and it's out with Knopf and it's just great. You know? <laughs> it's great. Were you told at some point there were too many mermaid books? I always think no, was... I never heard that. No, I okay, okay. That. I thought I, I heard you say yeah. that at some point, and I thought I had a friend who was trying to to publish a, a book that had polio in it, and she, they were like too much polio, and I was like, what does that even mean? Too much mer- <laughs> like, what? Too much polio. Too, much polio, too many mermaids. I don't know. Well, in our last few minutes together, are there pieces of writing advice that you? give to people regularly? I know you teach. And um, if there are things that we didn't cover today that you found particularly useful. Actually, before we get to that question, you've said a few times during this interview, I thought this would be my last book, or this is going to be my last book set in the Caribbean Mm. or something Mm. around that. And I'm wondering why you, why do you say that? I don't know. I think it's because of my age. I keep thinking as a Jungian, I'm aware that 56, 57 is the second Saturn return and also the start of a third act. And so I'm conscious that there's something inside me internally saying, okay, this is the beginning of the end kind of thing. This is your third act. You're not young. And also at this age, you know that you're not going to write eight more books. Like I've written eight books. That's a big body of work over 20 years. And you look forward and you go, right, I'm not going to write eight more books. That can't happen. I don't have the time in the world. I don't have time. To, I haven't got 20 more years. Well, I do, but I don't think I'm going to be. I was going to say, I hope 70s. you do. Yeah. Well, in <laughs> my 70s and 80s, I don't think I'm going to be thinking, oh, I've got to write one more book. And oh, I wonder what, you know, it's so competitive. <laughs> so I saw P.D. James talk once and she said she quit at 90 or something because she didn't want critics to say that her work, had, you know, her mind had gone and her work wasn't good enough or something. <laughs> There's something about that. You want to quit when you're ahead or something, because I reckon 10 more years. Yeah. But I don't know in 10 years if I'm going to knock out more than two or three more books. You know, if you you have to start getting realistic as you get older and you kind of go, well, how many more books do you think you're going to write? You know, I hear so many writers say I'm done, though, and then they 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 can't be done because it's just in their DNA. So there's another one and there's and I'm like, "Ah, I don't believe you. I know uh, so many writers. I, I know. Apparently, I've been saying I'm going to quit for like years now, years and years. It's too hard. I can't do it. I'm... It is hard. I, I, I was chatting to a really brilliant writer, I won't name her, recently. And her book's just been shortlist, longlisted for the booker. And, um, and I was like, yeah, it's a great book. And she, we had a really weird, candid conversation because and, and, I was interviewing her. 
and we just looked at each other and uh, for a moment and she said writing is really hard and i i said to her yes it is i've been doing it for 20 years it's the hardest th it's terribly hard because you are self-motivated you're on your own alone you have to be really sure about what you're doing and really believe in yourself against against vast odds you know yeah it's hard and you have to be good you know you have to have something worth saying it's tough it's tough on that note so that's why i think writers it's tough you, you kind of go through experience of writing a book and then you know it's happened to me you know you write a book it takes years and then you know two or three two or three reviews later and a handful of interviews it's all over and really quickly i mean you know we're, we're it's so hard to put a lot into a book to for it to go unread you know yeah that, that's yeah. a very common story i assume your motivation then must come from not from the external without of reviews and interviews but from i have something to say i'm trying to make mm. sense of my world mm. Regardless of whether this fell on deaf ears, it was mm. worth doing for me. I don't know. I'm putting words in your mouth. It's something like that. It's like I'm doing it anyway. That's what I do. It's my job. It's how I've this is how I've made a living for a long time. I know I can do it. Not many people can. It's like you know, I've got friends who've got who've taught their children to play a musical instrument, like from the from the time they were like two. And I've got friends who've now got young children, like they're between ten and fourteen, and they've been playing the violin like since they were two, and then they're always going to be a violin player. They'll always pick up a violin. They'll never not pick up a violin because they, because it's been embedded in their consciousness and their ability. They've learned to play the violin, you know, before they could walk kind of thing, or as they were learning how to walk, they can play the cello or the trumpet or whatever it is. And it's a bit like that. You, you, you embody a practice for so long, it gets hard to stop it as well. Is that the advice? That's pretty good advice. My advice would be, because I have been a magical realist from the get-go, and the first thing anyone ever said to me was, oh, it's not commercial, you'll never sell. And I went ahead and did it anyway. And all my books are magical. And um, there's always a talking tree or, you know, a mermaid or Lilith or a pixie that talks. Or there's always something in my work that's not quite human. And and I would say to anybody who wants to write is do exactly what you want. You do yeah. have a certain wonderful authority about that. I would say that really comes through in the writing this, that you own it, you know, and, and um, not every book does that. And I, I think that's, I think that's great advice. Thank I could you. talk to you for hours, really. Oh, I don't know yeah. where the hour, I don't know where an hour just went, but um, well, thank you for having me. This was wonderful. This was wonderful. Monique Rafi. We can find you on, we can find you uh, online. Twitter, Instagram. I've got a website out there. Yes. I'm quite easy to find. Yeah. We'll, we'll do links to all of that in the show notes. So we'll, we'll be able Thank to find you. you. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. A mutual pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Monique Rafi. The book is The Mermaid of Black Conch. It's out and available now. In addition to our Patreon page, you can visit our websites. Barbara's is barbaranamarcobarrett.com or penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.